Good morning, church. You can sit down, those of you who haven't yet. You know, um, some of what we do when we prepare these messages, thank you, Steve, is pre-planned, and anybody who either teaches a class or preaches a message always has about a third of what they prepared that never get put out there, unless it's manuscript, and I don't manuscript. But... Um, Certainly the uh, comments that Kelly made at the end about the unexpected events this week reminded me of one of my clients, and this is public record, um, about uh, six weeks ago was driving up from California in the middle of the night with his family, his wife and two 15-year-old twin boys. About three in the morning and a car in front of him started to kind of juke around. He avoided the, he's a professional truck driver. He avoided it in one lane and then avoided it in the next lane and eventually couldn't avoid it. And the guy clipped him such that his car about Albany careened off into a grove of trees. One of his two 15-year-old sons was killed immediately and his wife died in his arms. <clears throat> and by the time I met with him, um, one of the comments he said was, I guess God still has a purpose for me and my boy. I thought, Wow. You know, in the crucibles of life, when you live the life of faith and then the pressure comes, that's when you see that kind of resiliency. So, um, and we're going to talk about that today, the kind of uneventful, unexpected things that happen in life. But we're going to kind of get started with some kind of housekeeping. I was going to embarrass Neil and Shell today, but I don't see them. Did they show up? We have 60-year-old newlyweds out there, and um, they may be online or because it's still a week or two from their wedding, they may still be in bed. I don't know where they are, <laughs> but, but they, uh, they went out into the open sea and got married, and uh, congratulations to them. That was a romance that began right here in these chairs where they met each other and went from there. So we're so happy for Neil and for uh, his wife. And likewise, in terms of housekeeping, um, we're happy to know that uh, from the camp out two weeks ago, that Cherie made it back alive. Uh, and you may want to talk to her about her event on the water. When I left the campground, there were plans to drop her over the side of the bridge and um, I'm happy that she reported that that didn't happen. And uh, she and others had with that. And it wouldn't have happened either. But Cherie was a big uh, rafter before she had her injury. And so it was wonderful that she could get back out there. Um, so that's one of the housekeeping things that we're going to be dealing with. And then as you can see, it has to be said at some point, uh, I'm flying the colors today of the beavers, um, and, and I kind of have to because of the chaos that's going on in our sports world, um, and uh, <laughs> a year ago, the Pac-12 went to the Pac-10, and about a month ago, the Pac-10 went to the Pac-4, and based on the ACC ruminations in the last week, it may go to the Pac-2. 
in which case I think Doug is right, we might as well say it's packed up at that point. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the things that I'm grateful about, the news reports are coming out that the Oregon State trustees are meeting and trying to figure this out. They've got a new stadium, new debt, et cetera, et cetera. Boy, I'm thankful I'm not a trustee at Oregon State. That's a, that's a big problem to have, and I don't know where it's all going to spin out. Um, I have surveyed five of my friends that are duck enthusiasts, and every one of them, Doug included, have said, I'm not happy about this, and they shouldn't be. I suggested they maybe should not fly their colors and wear their garb quite as much as they have been, but uh, it's a crazy time. And for those of us that follow sports, uh, nothing stays the same forever. As you know, I follow the Cowboys, and I've raised my girls that in order to be prepared to be married, they have to do two things. They have to know how to cook, and they have to love football. And uh, one of my girls that lives in Texas now informed me that not only have certain of the teams left the Pac-12 for the Big Ten League, but apparently there's a rumor that the Cowboys are leaving the NFL to go to the Big Ten. <laughs> and, you know, I thought I raised her better than that. I, uh, uh, that's kind of embarrassing, um, but life goes on, huh? And uh, today we are in the Sermon on the Mount, and I, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a running kind of a housekeeping uh, jump at the at the sermon in a way to kind of bring you up to where we are today. The message today is where's the gold and the golden rule? And it's interesting to me as I did my research that this golden rule which you, most of you are probably raised with your parents saying for you uh, that that golden rule is one that, as the text says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Most of us were raised with that golden rule, do unto others as they would have them do unto you. And in my research, I've come up with somewhere between 10 and 12 different religious philosophies that have a similar rule. So one of the things we're gonna have to say is what's unique about this instruction by Jesus? Where is the gold in this golden rule? And I think, I think we'll be able to find it in the text today. And the way we're gonna find it is by starting with a hypothetical. I do a lot of trial work uh, and um, as part of my activity in trial, particularly during cross-examination, I do at times what's called hypotheticals. Hypotheticals are questions you give a witness based on hypothetical facts. You're trying to set up a scenario where you get an answer that helps your case, but the hypothetical gives hypotheticals and says, well, how would your answer be if the facts were ABC? And it, it's pretty effective if it's, in, if it's put in the right place at trial. Um, but I'm gonna give you a hypothetical today. I'm gonna ask you to hypothetically pretend you have a three by five card in front of you. And I want you on that three by five card to write out the thing that grips your soul, that raises questions in your heart, that is questions you don't have an answer for, that we wanna lay at the feet of Jesus today. So hypothetically, you're now, humor me, you are writing out this three by five card and you're listing out, and I thought of some things I've run into either 
in my life or in people that I work with, things like health issues. We have one of the men in our body who is going in for a health examination on Monday with some recurring serious kind of heart health issues. You may write down finances. John, I've got, I've got questions about finances. I'm not sure that I've made the right decisions in the financial commitments that I made. I'm not sure I have the money to make things, make ends meet. Your question may have to do with job and work and career and have I made the right decisions? Have I leaned my career ladder up against the right wall? Uh, what is going to happen to me and where do I calculate after work, retirement and the like? You may have questions on your hypothetical card about your spouse. What do, what do I do? Things are not going well. And I, I don't know how to handle this situation. It may be not your spouse. It may be your siblings. They may even be adult siblings who've kind of gone off the rails. You thought they were Christians, and, and, and the behavior now doesn't seem to match up with that. It may be your children. Boy, that's one that's close to all of our hearts. We all want our children to do better than we did. We want them to go farther than we've gone. And for many of us, in fact, for most of us, that's not quite the way all the children have come out. Um, maybe some, maybe none. And so you ask the question, where are they at in their walk with the Lord? And, and we know we can't do it for them, but that certainly doesn't alleviate our parental concern. Uh, we've got issues that you could be writing in your card about, about the issue of someone who has died and you don't understand that. It could be a family member, it could be a parent, it could be a friend, and you say, God, what was the purpose in that? I don't understand that. All those kinds of swirling questions on your hypothetical card maybe take second place to this one. What about my failures? What about things that have happened in life because I have failed? And I can at least find some kind of proportional link between my failure and the things that are happening now. Well, Jesus entered onto the scene at the Sermon on the Mount, and he blew the doors open. There's no other way to there's no other way to describe it. If you want proof of that, just go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where it says, "When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as those teachers of the law." He blew the religious doors open in the first century. And he instructed not just what it means to become a child of God, but what it means to become a follower of God, a disciple. And the Sermon on the Mount is really a series of narratives about what it takes to grow us up spiritually, to make us a disciple. So... All your hypothetical cards, you're now passing them to the end of the row and you're passing them up to me and I'll refer to them later. Thank you for participating in that. Um, but I want you to remember what you wrote down on your card, okay? Um, the Sermon on the Mount has um, a number of subjects that it addresses, but one of the things that it addresses that we, as Christians, we hop over. We, we love the instructions about uh, blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Um, don't worry, because today has enough trouble of its own. I mean, you can go through all the sermon, you can love those things, but the hopovers that we do in the Sermon on the Mount, 
I'm going to point them out to you just briefly and suggest how we might understand them. The hopovers have to do with the warnings to disciples, to us. In other words, what the Bible says is as Christians, once you believe in Christ, you become a child of God. And you are sealed until the day of redemption. My theology says that cannot and will not be undone. But you set your feet on a course that is a race. It's a race course. It's moving toward a crown. And the very real reality is we run a good race or we don't. And if we don't, what does that mean? Well, let's look in the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at the warnings, and I'm just going to point those out to you in relation to the sermon, chapter 5 says, Blessed are you when people insert, insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Whoa, I'm not sure that's the sort of thing I signed up for in terms of following Jesus. Or you go over to um, chapter 5, where the warning is in the context of murder, uh, do it while you are still with him on the way. Resolve your issues with him, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Kind of a sobering warning that Jesus spoke about. You get into the subject of divorce in chapter 5, and he says, anyone who um, divorces his wife for other than adultery um, anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That, as we said a couple weeks ago when I was, instruct when I was talking to you about judgment, was, um, was a very sober standard, a new standard, where men and women were considered on an equal plane, and that's consistent with the Bible, where we are told that men and women are joint heirs of the grace of God. You get into chapter 5 at the end, we're loving your enemy. The warning is, and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So the warning is that there are hard times coming for a disciple. And you can go on and on through chapter 6 and chapter 7. I won't belabor it, but the warnings continue where, for example, with treasures in heaven, we are to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven because if our eyes are bad, if we're redirected so that our priorities are wrong and our eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So the warning in terms of being ones who lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven is that there is an alternative that we won't do that and that our life does not measure up to the standard that God has for us as disciples. Um, I didn't say in the message two messages ago on the issue of the lottery and how to win the lottery. I didn't, I didn't finish that off the way I wanted to, but I want to catch that up today. Um, I've gotten a number of you say afterwards, well, John, how, how, do I, how do I give my money and resources and time uh, and possessions, uh, how do I prioritize them? And I, I think on this, I think the counsel of Doug and others is really good. And as you start at your home front, and you make sure your family's cared for because that's biblical. He that does not care for his family is worse than an unbeliever. And then in concentric circles, you go to your local church. And I can say that because I'm, I'm good for nothing here. I don't get paid for this. I am part of the supporters of this church too. And this is an amazing local church. And the breadth of ministry that it has, not only locally, but around the world, continues to amaze me. And I want to encourage you 
and your giving process, as you're laying up treasures in heaven, don't overlook Grace Point because this is a strategic place where God is moving and he uses the resources, the people and finances that we have to make a difference. Uh, the warnings continue in the sermon where uh, in terms of the narrow and wide gate, there is a warning that comes after our section today and it says, if you are in the wide gate, you are in a gate that leads to destruction. So here's the hopovers that we're gonna talk about today. As a disciple, you have the choice of doing well in your life, doing medium well in your life, doing less well in your life, or having very little that seems to evidence your faith in life that comes after your belief in Christ. All those categories can be found in the scriptures of people that are all stages of the race continuing on, falling off. And so what Jesus is teaching about today in terms of the context of perseverance is how to stay on course, how to keep on track in a way of dealing with the hypotheticals in life. And now we are in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. The text reads, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Three things we're told to do. First of all, ask. What does that mean? It means that in faith, we believe that God is intervening in our life and we in prayer are acknowledging that we are in need and in humility, we need him to act on our behalf or on behalf of the ones that we're interceding for. The first step that Jesus teaches is you ask, you seek the, um, the uh, presence of God in the prayers that you have. I'm a big fan in routine. And so if you were with me in the mornings, you'd find out that my prayer life starts as I'm driving to work. And I have a sequence of people that I pray for, and I pray with specificity for them. But this text says that's the starting point of addressing issues that you find in life. Chuck Swindoll is right. Steve and I quote him a lot because we were both kind of mentored by him. Chuck says it's... Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you deal with it. And the way you deal with it is you start on your knees or in my case, in the car or whatever your framework is by which your day starts with asking. And the promise is, did you see that? That if you ask, the text says, everyone who asks receives. There's your promise. Stage two. Says you seek. What does that mean? It means that you do more than just pray. It means that you act out. You get moving. You don't sit in the middle of that pond with your sail down. You run the sail up. You get moving. And you act in a way that you believe is honorable and reasonable in terms of things that God wants you to do. It's not enough to pray. 
unless that's a circumstance in life that that's your only option. But this text says you go from asking to seeking. You move out. You come up with a plan. I told you two or three messages ago about the motorcycle incident where my buddy has the radar that goes out, and I use that as an analogy on how I live my life. That my radar goes out on, on what I can do to what I can do to encourage people. And again, one of my radar beams at McDonald's at 6.05 this morning with a gal that I regularly see as I go through there for coffee, a Hispanic woman who we've developed a cordial relationship in the last couple of years. She said, what are you doing today? I said, going to work. I said, well, I'm standing in today for, for pastor and preaching for him. And it led to the subject of Jesus, and it led to the subject of faith, and her Catholic background, and I thought, you know, there's a connection. You, you, you have those, those sensitivities, those radar beams out that says, what is somebody I can talk to, somebody I can encourage, some way in which the kingdom of God can be spread from me to those who are around me. First you ask, second you move out, that's seeking. And the promise is that if we seek, Everyone who asks receives, and those who seeks finds. The promise is God will honor your movement, but you've got to move out. You've got to do something. Third part of this triumvirate is knock. What does that mean? Knocking means you stay at it. It means you persevere. You've asked. Now you've asked plus you've act. That's the seeking. Now you ask, plus you act, plus you persevere. You keep at it. And that may be the single best answer to your hypotheticals that you gave me. You keep at it. We may not know the answers to why certain things happen. I love in John 9 <laughs> where when Jesus came upon a man who was blind, the sage religious leader said, well, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. This is, for, this is according to those that show the grace and, and the work of God in that man's life. And you remember that man who was confronted later on after Jesus gave him his sight said, what happened? He said, well, I don't know. All I know is once I was blind, now I can see. In other words, some things that happen in life, we don't know why they happen to you. We don't. We can leave them with God and say, uh, I'm just going to trust you in that situation. Other circumstances that happen in life are connected to things that we either know have happened or things that we've done, and the question will be, how do we persevere through it? And the answer is, it's trite, but it's true. You keep on keeping on. You get out of bed the next morning, and you say, okay, God, here I am again. I'm trusting you in the circumstances of the situation. I don't understand what's going on in my kid's life, but I'm asking you again to work in their lives. I don't understand why I lost a parent. I don't understand why my friend died. I don't understand why I got that health diagnosis, but I'm going to persevere in my confidence that your hand is involved in my life and the life of those around me. God makes no mistakes that way. So, here's the instruction. 
I had a friend who years ago uh, wanted to stay reminded in how he needed to treat his wife. So on a garage wall inside of his house, as he pulled in his car into the garage, he stenciled the following letters in the back wall of his garage. L, Y, W, A, C, L, T, C. So when he drove in, he saw that. What was he reminded of? You get to move to the front row. I don't think I've ever told this story, so why would you know the answer? The uh, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And he wanted to be reminded of that every time he drove his car in the garage. Here's my suggestion. On the back wall of your garage or on your notebook, write the three letters, A, S, K. What does that stand for? Ask, seek, knock. Those are Jesus' instructions to us. And the promise is that if we do that, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. And God will intervene based in part on your intercession on those questions of life that you don't yet have answers to. The text goes on to promise us in kind of a hinged passage in chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, that he analogizes this to the human family when he says... Um, which of you, if your son asks for bread and gives him a, a stone, or if he asks for a fish, would he give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good gifts to those who ask him? Circle in your mind those two words, good gifts, because that's the hinge that moves us into the next section. Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, keep it going, and consider the logical analysis that if you, in your, as a human father, want to give good gifts, how much more does your heavenly father want to give good gifts to you? And so then we come to the golden rule. The golden rule, which has received a lot of attention and sometimes criticism. There were two professors of an Ivy League college who uh, one taught in the area of theology and the other taught in the area of astronomy and they were at a faculty get together at the end of a particular week and they got to talking and they found out what each of them did by way of a teaching discipline and the astro astronomer using this golden rule said kind of sarcastically well isn't all of your Christian faith just summarized in do unto others as they would have you do unto them and he meant that as a criticism and the theology professor said, well, I don't know. Maybe it's something like in your discipline, all of your work can be summarized in twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> the truth is, the, good, the, the um, golden rule is the caboose attached to the engine. And the engine, contextually, is our Heavenly Father who gives us good gifts. He is the driving force by which we then act out in a way that's honorable to Him and to Jesus. So we treat others as 
we would have them do to us because not only is that the impetus that comes from our Heavenly Father who gives us good gifts, but it's the whole summary of the Law and the Prophets. In other words, it summarizes all of what God wants for us to end up being and doing and certainly addressing the golden rule. It's certainly true that um, to those who heard Jesus' words, this was staggeringly different than what they had seen around them. They'd seen religious hypocrites and phonies and charlatans and ego-driven men who loved the seat of high places and loved the praise and loved the personal benefits that came out of being a religious leader in that community. And Jesus was the opposite. No wonder this blew the doors off of what the disciples understood was a true follower of God. And finally, as you see in the reference to the Law and Prophets, uh, there are other passages of Scripture that address the fact that this, in fact, is the summary of all of the Old Testament. In fact, in Mark chapter 12 and verses 32 to 34, you remember that the religious leaders came to Jesus and tried to trick him. And they tried to say, well, you know, um, Jesus, you're, you're one that seems to have the answers for everything. So uh, we, we don't uh, really understand how it is that there is a distinction, and this comes in at Mark 12, a distinction uh, of the law in relation to the religious affairs of men and women. And in fact, they addressed him and said, um, how do you understand marriage and the resurrection? Aha, gotcha. Are we married in heaven or are we not? And Jesus answered them, and at the end of his answer, he says, uh, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. If ever, if ever Jesus had a mic to drop, that's when it would have dropped. Because the religious leader said, you gave a good answer on that. And then he went on to say, you're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. <clears throat> to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all of burnt offerings and sacrifices. You see the whole package? That's where the Sermon on the Mount ends. It ends with Jesus summarizing all of the Old Testament and saying, it is honorable to be one who loves the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And that's the driving impetus. That's the engine. That's the connection. That's us as children of God. And everything that comes out of that in terms of our behavior, our faith, our trusting him for our children, for our circumstances, for our health, for our, for our religion, for our finances, for all the questions and guilt and condemnation that we feel for failures we've had in life, all of that is connected back to the one whom we love with all of our heart and soul and mind. You know, failure is not unique to just the disciples. The whole of the foundation of the Bible is built on the following. Moses was a murderer. So was David, King David. Premeditated, by the way. Elijah suffered from deep depression. 
Peter publicly denied the Lord three different times. Samson couldn't get over the ladies. And even though he was told not to, he ended up with a thousand wives and concubines. Thomas, it was cynical doubting. Jacob, it was deception. Rahab, she was earlier a prostitute in her life before she came into the lineage of Jesus. Jephthah illegally was born out of wedlock. And in all of that, rather than getting down on ourselves for the failures in our life, we say, wait a minute, I serve a God who has redeemed me, has washed me, has saved me, and has set my foot on the rock to make meaning out of my life and the lives around me. You ask, you seek, and you knock. You keep moving. We can't really get very far from James, uh, the book of James, when we, when we close out these kind of messages because it teaches us that we are to receive with joy those things that are trials in our life because we know that the encounters, the things you wrote down in your hypothetical cards for me, that um, those things are addressed in a way to shape us, to cause us to grow up in the faith. Uh, one author has said, you know, fame is a vapor, popularity is an accident, riches take wing, but only character endures. And that's really what Jesus is saying. Be people whose feet are on the rock, who set your direction and you're moving. You're not just praying, but you're acting and you're persevering and you're coming back again and again. I love the perseverance stories in the book of Luke, um, and I'll only summarize them for you, but the, um, the one that I often come back to because it, it kind of segues into my own career is the woman who was in front of a judge who feared neither God nor man, Luke 18. And I love this story uh, in part because it has a judicial ring to it, but I'm happy to tell you it's not the kind of judges that I'm in front of, but she was in front of one, and all she said was, give me justice, give me justice. And the judge ignored her and put her off, and uh, again and again it addressed the fact that she, wasn't, she was asking, but he wasn't answering. And, um, and, then, the, and then the judge finally conceded and said, um, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually, or so eventually she'll wear me out with her coming. I love that. Because if ever there's a picture of perseverance, it's the have-nots, the little widow who has no basis to get the judge's attention, coming back time and time again. And Jesus said, the reason he told that parable, and this is the point of the whole parable. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge said, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, I will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Do you see what's established for sure? And what's contingent in that? What's established for sure is what? Starts with a J. Justice. God's going to take care of the nations. 
in its order and time. He's going to take care of this country in its order and time. He's going to do his will and purpose across this planet. But the thing that he may or may not find when he comes back based on our perseverance is, will he find faith? That's what he taught the disciples. Persevere. Stay like that widow in the agenda. Keep your sail up. Keep moving. ASK, keep knocking in a way that God will eventually open that door. You know, character is not only what you are in the dark. It's what you are when nobody's looking. And for us, we have the privilege and honor of investing our life in a way that counts for eternity. And we have it by following in the steps of Jesus and with his instructions and directing our course in a way by faith that says, God will address my hypothetical. It may be in this life. It may be in the life to come. But there are answers out there. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we can come back to you and leave our questions with you uh, in terms of how we live our lives. Thank you for the clarity of your word that gives us direction and the instruction of the word which divides between the soul and spirit of our lives in a way that um, answers questions of how we are to act and be. We're thankful for Jesus who has set our feet on the rock and we're thankful for the work of the spirit which keeps giving us direction. In Jesus' name, amen.